Uh, my name is Benny Berhe. I am a senior solutions architect here at Amazon Web Services. I'm accompanied by two very special guests from Dow Jones, one of which is Mona Sony, who's the VP of engineering. Another one is uh, Luke Suwatsky, who's the engineering manager today. Uh, before we get started, I wanted to call out some breakout sessions and uh, workshops that are related to this specific session, one of which is design, migrate, and optimize SQL Server on AWS. This is led by our uh, partner, SA, Tom Stab. <clears throat> it's a very, very informative session that helps you understand how to best set up your SQL Server environment for success. Uh, the other session is a workshop. This is a hands-on lab. It's uh, titled Modernize Your SQL Server Workloads on AWS. Uh, to Amazon Aurora. This is a uh, lab that allows you to learn what it takes to move a database or migrate a database in SQL Server over to a MySQL compatible version of Aurora. Uh, we have two deep diving sessions, uh, one of which is a MySQL compatible uh, version of Aurora and the other one is a PostgreSQL compatible version of Aurora. I won't have the time to go as deep as I'd like with Aurora. Uh, this is an option for you to modernize your SQL Server workloads, right? So uh, it's, I'm going to go a little deeper into it. It'll be a lot more high level. And uh, if you want to learn more, I would, I would uh, suggest that you attend those sessions. <clears throat> so for the agenda today, we're going to first uh, level set what modernization means. Then we'll cover SQL Server on Linux, just from a high level with regard to cost. Compare that to Windows Server today. We'll talk about optimized CPUs and how that could help you optimize your licensing for SQL Server on EC2. I'll cover Amazon Aurora soon after, talk about a lot of the features and functionality that come with that. Go over the database migration service. We'll understand what that service does and how that helps you migrate in an automated fashion. <clears throat> soon after that, we'll cover the database freedom program. And before we wrap up, we'll have Dow Jones come on stage and talk about their journey. So let's level set. What, what does modernization mean? Right? So if you're anything like myself, you don't like to see the actual word as part of the definition, but I couldn't help myself with this one. <clears throat> so modernization is really a progressive transition, really from a traditional to a pre-modern, or traditional to a modern state. Right? So a traditional way of running things is typically where you have uh, an increase in quality an increase in efficiency and speed, and that cost goes up with that modernization uh, uh, technique or that step, right? So if we think about SQL Server as a whole, every version that's come out has come out with better functionality and better features, right? I used to be a SQL Server DBA. I remember when Always On wasn't something that was available prior to SQL Server 2012, right? Or table partitioning, right, prior to SQL Server 2008 R2, <clears throat> right? So we had features and functionality that continued to evolve as you went with you know, newer versions or more modern versions of SQL Server. Right? With that came an increase in cost. And that sometimes could be a bit problematic when you have to deal with uh, paying for Windows Server licenses. Right? So with Windows Server 2019 today, you're paying $6,155 per core. Right? That's just for Windows Server as an operating system. That can be pretty pricey when you have multiple cores on a machine and you also have SQL Server that you haven't licensed yet. Okay? With Linux, Linux isn't anything new. It's been around since the you know, mid-1990s. Right? But from a cost perspective, when you compare it to Windows Server today, a Linux uh, operating system costs you $0 to install and run your SQL Server workload. Right? Starting with SQL Server 2017, Microsoft's made it available for you to be able to run it on a Linux platform. Right? So Red Hat Linux, uh, SUSE, or SUSE, I think is how you pronounce it, Right, enterprise server. Um, also, uh, you're able to now run it on containers, right, with Docker. You can put it on an Ubuntu operating system as well, right? So Microsoft's made that available to you, uh, and their goal is really over time, as, as more and more versions get released, uh, to have uh, feature parity, meaning you could run whatever you're able to run on Windows, Windows Server, you'll be able to run on Linux. <clears throat> so as it continues to mature, that product will get better and give you more flexibility to be able to run it on Linux. The cost of running Linux is $0 as far as the operating system costs go. But for support, if you wanted to opt in for support, you are paying at a per socket level for you know, Red Hat or SUSE, right? And that is you know, 
we all know cores, you can have multiple cores per socket, and you'd still be able to save fractions, right? You, you, you wouldn't, you'd spend fractions less than what you would spend if you had that SQL Server instance running on a Windows Server today. We have a, a SQL Server replatforming assistant. So for those that don't know or uh, are not familiar with Linux, right, if you wanted to, let's say, even test migrating your uh, SQL Server database or multiple databases into a Linux environment, you can use this replatforming assistant, and it would automate that migration for you. So typically, the flow would go, <clears throat> when you start that assistant, it would take a, a, a base backup or a backup of your database or multiple databases, save it to your file system local to the machine, copy it to an S3 bucket of your choice, download that onto an EBS volume or copy it over to an EBS volume on that Linux instance and then bring that database online or multiple databases or all, or, or all databases for that matter, right? So this is a very nice tool to use if you wanted to kind of, you know, at least test the capabilities or, or kind of get more familiar with running your SQL Server instance on a, you know, non-licensed operating system. <clears throat> I like this feature, optimize CPUs. This is, this is available today for our BYOL or bring your own license customers. Um, let's say on premises you have a machine, a SQL Server instance that required an X amount of uh, memory, right? When I was a SQL Server DBA, I hated the fact that I had to move that machine or that workload onto an instance that had the memory footprint that, that my SQL Server workload needed, but didn't want or didn't need the vCPUs, right? We all know SQL Server is based on, as far as licensing goes, is on core counts or vCPUs on a, on a virtual machine. If your, work, if your workload only requires eight vCPUs, why run it on a 16 vCPU box, right? Take advantage of the memory that that machine comes with, the network bandwidth, the EBS throughput, and the EBS bandwidth, and also be able to take control of how many vCPUs you have active on that machine. Right? So this gives you more control, more granularity, and be able to better uh, right-size that environment or that workload for your SQL Server instance. <clears throat> now, Aurora. Right, if some of you may not have heard about this database engine. It's part of our RDS family. Right? So RDS is our relational database service. This is an automated, uh, fully managed service that we provide to you. You have six different platforms or database instances that you can choose from. We have open source solutions in MySQL, PostgreSQL, or MariaDB. We have commercial engines with SQL Server and uh, Oracle, or you can go with our cloud native solution in Amazon Aurora, right? We have this service is, as far as your day-to-day -day needs go, it takes a lot of that day-to-day -day work that you're doing as far as, you know, patching, uh, uh, you know, setting up your, uh, 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 your failover needs, right? Uh, setting up your HA, uh, scaling your storage, right? Storage is scaled for you automatically. You have push button scaling for compute, right? You no longer need to really cut a ticket open for your server guys to be able to, you know, put yourself on a, on a better performing machine. You have a lot more control with this service. With regard to Aurora, before I can talk about Aurora, I kind of want to spend a little more time talking about SQL Server, right? So out of the box, SQL Server's got a rich set of tools, like features such as always on, right? Log shipping, replication, database mirroring, which is deprecated and you know, will eventually be uh, discontinued, but it's still around, even for SQL Server 2019 today, right? You're able to partition your data, right? Out of the box, it's just, it's just rich. It's, it's got a lot of different functionalities. It's giving you a lot of different you know, flavors of what you can do on a machine, right? MySQL. Today, with MySQL, you, out of the box, can't set up HA, right? You'd have to go with a third-party tool or, or a vendor in Percona to do that, right? With Aurora, what, is, what Aurora has done is it's taken a lot of the capabilities and features that commercial engines provide you and is coming to you at an open source price. Right? With Aurora, you're saving, it's one-tenth the price of what SQL Server is today when you compare it to just a like-for-like. Like. With regard to licensing, Aurora doesn't, provide, doesn't require you to buy a license. Right? It's distributed with regard to storage, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. I have a, 
an architecture where I'll be able to explain that a little further. It's a fully managed service, right? It's part of the RDS family. I talked about that a little bit. It's native to the cloud, making it very simple for you to use. And you can integrate services such as CloudWatch, right? Identity and access management for any security needs. You can use Lambda, right? If you had any procedural code that needed to run outside of that instance. If you look at the bottom half of the screen, the storage nodes, those, those boxes you see are storage nodes that back and support that instance that you have running. You know, whether it's a Postgres compatible instance of, or Postgres compatible uh, uh, version of Aurora, or if it's a MySQL compatible version of Aurora, right? These are hundreds of storage nodes, sometimes even thousands of storage nodes that support your instance. They're striped across three availability zones today, right? And they're carved, giving you two copies of your data in each availability zone. If you have workloads that require you to be, you know, uh, to have a different site, or a different region, for instance, right? If it's mission critical, you can go with our, you can go with our Amazon Aurora Global Database, right? And as of recently, we're now able to have different uh, 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 sets of read replicas in multiple different regions. And those regions, or those read replicas in those in those regions are behind by less than one second. Right? And you can fail over to any one of those regions if you so chose. If you lost two availability zones, or let's say, I'll start over, if you lost one availability zone, and you have two that are live, you can still run your reads and writes from that, from that database instance. If you lose another one, you can run reads. right? Or you can fail over to your other region and continue running as as you were. With provisioned Aurora, you provision that instance for peak load. Right? You can monitor and scale it up and down based on usage. If you have applications that are brand new, right? if you have applications that are uh, perhaps spiky or, or inconsistent, you can go with Amazon Aurora serverless. This will scale up your, your workload rapidly and gradually scale it down as less and less requests come in. Right? Meaning, if you have no more requests coming in after a certain amount of time, that compute is shut down. It's shut off completely. You no longer incur costs on the compute. You have the storage that's still backing your data, right? that's still supporting the data. You'll continue paying for that, but then you at least don't pay for the compute. When we think about database health at a glance, right, we have CloudWatch. You can, you can leverage CPU metrics to make decisions on what you want to do next about your workload. We have memory metrics. We have reads per second, writes per second, a lot of latency-related metrics with regard to uh, queuing. Right? You could leverage our Amazon CloudWatch logs right, that give you audit information, error logs. You can take all of that information and put it into a centralized log store. We also have enhanced monitoring. Now, these are additional database level metrics that give you up to a one second granularity. Right? If you don't have monitoring tools in place, right, you could use a, a tool uh, or, or a service called Performance Insights. Right? When I was a SQL Server DBA, I was fixated literally on figuring out who was running what, when they were running it, right? what host it was coming from, right? and, and the wait type that was incurred. When there was a performance problem, I wanted to know when that happened, who did it, and why they did it. Right? This gives you a glimpse as to when or what happened. This is today available for both MySQL and PostgreSQL compatible versions of Aurora. Right? You get seven days of data retention for free. Or I should say no additional cost. <laughs> right? You get up to two years of data that you can retain. These are metrics that you can retain for future use. Right? Database cloning. I don't know how many SQL Server DBAs are out there right now, but when I was a SQL Server DBA, I had databases that ranged anywhere between 800 gigabytes to you know, 12 terabytes. Right? Taking a copy-only backup, because you needed to refresh it in a QA environment or a non-prod environment, would take some time. Right? Whether it's in a, uh, some SMB share somewhere that you needed to you know, restore from, or if you, if you needed something a lot more current, you know, taking a copy-only backup was probably your only real option from production. 
right? You didn't want to mess with the log sequence numbers. Whatever the deal is, it's going to take you some time to back up. It's going to take you some time to copy. It's going to take you some time to restore, right? It may take hours. With database cloning, it takes a few minutes, right? You can have up to 15 of these clones, right? And if there's no data storage difference, you pay nothing for that clone. You can use that clone to, to run benchmarks, right? You can use that clone to run your uh, uh, QA or test workloads against, right? If you had a bug, if you wanted to use it as a point in time snapshot of your data, right? You wanted to read from it, build reports off of it, right? If, you're not, if there's no data storage difference, you pay nothing. You can have up to 15 of these clones. And again, this is, it takes a few minutes for a clone to spin up, right, and to use. And this is also available for both MySQL and PostgreSQL compatible engines of uh, Aurora. Backtracking. Again, restoring a SQL Server database would mean you'd go to a file and you restore from that file, right? You'd either restore it right on top of that production database or you'd go restore it somewhere else. With backtracking, different from RDS snapshots, right? With RDS snapshots, when you restore a snapshot, you restore it into a new instance. This is very time consuming. We're trying to fix that right now, right? We want to reduce that time for uh, restorations for you. So we came up with this Aurora backtracking feature that allows you to be able to backtrack multiple times, right, without it being destructive. So let's say you had four transactions running, right? Let's say uh, transaction zero is when you actually created that database. You deleted, I don't know, maybe three million rows, and you think it happened on the second transaction. You roll back to the first, and you decide, okay, that's not where we did it. Let's, let's go back to the, you know, let's check out the fourth one and roll back to the third, right? You can backtrack multiple times to find the right point in time. This gives you up to 72 hours of data retention. You tell us how much time or how much data you want us to retain, right? You, get, you have an option of up to 72 hours. If you wanted only 24, we can retain 24 for you, right? And it's just a, it's a sliding. I wish I had a picture of it. I don't have a picture of it up right now. It's literally just the UI, and you decide to you know, slide it back and forth. You can go back as far as you want, up to 72 hours, right? This today is available on uh, Aurora MySQL 5.6. <clears throat> I have three customers that I wanted to kind of highlight today. So new innovations. You know, they went from, you know, they had over 700 plus instances of SQL Server and recently uh, uh, managed to migrate over to Amazon Aurora PostgreSQL, right? This is, you know, I, to think about SQL Server from their beneficial standpoint, you know, you had table partitioning where you're, you're able to tweak files, right? You're, you're able to put files in certain file groups on slower performing disks if you have really old data, right? And then put newer data on faster performing disks, maybe on SSDs, right? Because that's, that's the data that's actually viewed the most or queried for the most, right? They, now they no longer have to worry about doing that. They no longer have to worry about tweaking and configuring files because of that, because you have hundreds or even sometimes thousands of storage nodes that could service any request that comes in, right? Jobvite, I love this story. You know, they went from uh, SQL Server to Aurora MySQL, right? They were able to reduce their cost by 40%. That's huge. They're able to respond to customers up to 40% faster, right? They had a monthly database maintenance task that took their application down for three hours. I'd hate that, right? Refresh times went down from 20 hours, went from 20 hours down to two hours, right? So not only did they get a better quality of service, they're more efficient, they're able to act quicker, right? So faster speed, and they're also reducing their cost. That's, that's a truly modern way to run, a, you know, any sort of workload. I was gonna say business, but I'm gonna stick to workloads, right? Decisive. This company went from SQL Server to Amazon Aurora PostgreSQL and are now able to you know, take advantage of how rapidly it scales, whether it's got to do with compute, storage, right, or anything else. They're able to meet the demands of their customers mainly because of the quality of service that they're getting from Aurora. 
database migration service. I don't know if some of you have heard of this service at all, but I'd like to think of it as a replication broker, right? So SQL Server has, you know, transactional replication, right? You have push, pull, you have different models of replication, right? With DMS, it sort of acts that way, you can say, right? It's very easy to use. It supports most widely used database engines such as SQL Server, MySQL, Oracle, you know, PostgreSQL, right? You can do a lot with this tool. It's very low on cost. You don't pay for the, the database migration service to stream that data over to your target. Right? You only pay for the storage and the compute that's backing the targets and the sources. Right? If, you're, if your source is on-prem, you're obviously not paying for that, right? but you are paying for the target and what's actually supporting that target. For those that are running SQL Server 2008 still, or 2008 R2 today, we all know that's out of, you know, it's end of life or end of support as of July of this year. You could use the database migration service to go from your on-premises workload or EC2 or RDS as a source and be able to replicate that instance over to uh, a newer, more modern version of SQL Server, like let's say SQL Server 2017, right? So you can use this service to be able to stream that data and broker that data over to your target. For customers that are ready for a heterogeneous migration, right? So this is going from SQL Server to a completely different platform, such as Aurora. It's typically a two-step process. You have the schema conversion tool that helps you automate the conversion of your schema. This schema is, you know, tables, uh, data types within those tables, functions, and stored procedures. It will automatically convert that schema and bring it into your target, right? Anything that it cannot convert. It will call it out in a PDF format, right, or some presentable format for you and give you the control on whether or not you want to bring that on board to your target, the schema. Once the schema is there, then you can start to populate that, that table, right? You can take the data using DMS and stream that data over to your target, right? So there will be some development time, right? There's going to be some effort that's going to you know, you're converting your, your data. You're not going from SQL Server to SQL Server, right? You don't just restore a database, backup, and you run. It's not the way it works when you convert your data. A really cool feature of the database migration service is its ability to consolidate the data. So if you had, let's say, three databases, different sizes, right, and you wanted to consolidate it for licensing needs or maybe you just wanted to be a lot more efficient, with the way the data is being queried. Maybe you're tired of doing cross-database joins, right? Maybe it's no longer efficient to do so. Maybe those servers or databases are on different servers. You can take this feature within the database uh, migration service tool and consolidate that. You don't need to consolidate it into Aurora. You can consolidate it into a newer version of SQL Server, right? You can also go the opposite direction. Let's say you had like a 12 to 15 terabyte or even more Monolithic, monolithic database that's been around since the creation of your company. You have financial data, you have employee data, you have performance data, right? You can take that and decouple it into multiple different databases so you can reduce the blast radius every time you have a release, whether you're trying to patch something, right? Whatever it is, you have more control with that now because of the database, database migration service. <clears throat> The schema conversion tool supports all these sources and all of these targets today, right? But because we're talking about SQL Server, you can go from Microsoft SQL Server as a source over to Amazon Aurora, Amazon Redshift. You can send it into MySQL, PostgreSQL, and or MariaDB, right? It's powerful. Reduces the time it takes for you to actually migrate or the effort it takes, right? Let us help you migrate. We'll automate as much as we can Right? And we'll work with you. The perfect transition. Database Freedom Program. I don't know if you guys have heard about this program. It was built and created to really help you accelerate your uh, enterprise workloads away from commercial engines in you know, SQL Server or Oracle into more of a cloud-native or AWS engine. Right? RDS has a number of options you can choose from. I don't know how many of you guys like to go through a whole true up exercise every year, 
I, you know, inventory-wise, it's a headache. Being a SQL Server DBA, going through your entire inventory, four or 500 servers, maybe 600, maybe more, right? And learning that, hey, we've actually deployed Enterprise Edition in our non-prod environment, when we should have deployed uh, Standard Edition or even maybe Developer Edition, right? That could be costly. Right? This is when you learn at the end of the year if you've over-provisioned or under-provisioned. Both cases are costly, right? It's punitive. It's proprietary to SQL, uh, Microsoft, right? And you're locked in for a few years. It's a headache for a SQL Server DBA to have to do this every year, whether you've got it automated or not, right? CFO is probably not going to be happy to pay extra or learn that they paid, you know, uh, not enough. Right? You don't want to be stuck in that situation. With the Database Freedom Program, it, you know, to talk about it, I can go over really three high-level things. Right? We're able to take advantage of the innovation here at AWS with tools such as the Schema Conversion Tool and the Database Migration Service. Right? So these help you really migrate in an automated fashion, enabling you to reduce the manual effort it takes to actually do the migration. Right? We have experts on hand, solutions architects, systems integrators. Right? We have partners you can leverage, very knowledgeable people. If you didn't want to go that route, you can leverage our migration playbooks. You can understand some of the best practices that go around that actual migration. Right? These are play-by-play -play steps that help you get to where you want to go. We also have POC and pilot credits. Right? We incentivize that migration by helping you pay for a lot of that legacy licensed product, like, for instance, with SQL Server. Right? We'll try to make it easier for you financially. We'll try to make it easier for you with regard to documentation and experts, right? and leveraging some of our innovative tools that we have today. And without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Mona, who's going to talk about their journey. Thank you, Bini. I hope you guys can hear me. Yep, cool. So um, how many of you consumed any sort of news content this morning before coming to the sessions? Raise your hand if you did. <laughs> oh, that's good. Like, I didn't have that much expectation, given this is Vegas, people still caring about news. How many was that in a print paper? None. You guys lived up to my expectation. Thank you so much. So uh, we are Dow Jones, uh, the parent company for uh, Wall Street Journal, Market Watch, Balance, Factiva. I have my WSJ and uh, Market Watch colleagues here in the audience. Thank you so much for coming. So we, are, uh, we publish all this uh, information to all our consumers and people, uh, our customers on the professional side, and yes, we also have the print editions for WSJ, for Balance Magazine, and many other uh, things because our customers still are interested in print. So one of my teams is responsible for serving all the market data that you see on all these websites, and that is a platform that has been around for more than 20 years. So we once had, Dow Jones had the Dow Jones Index, so a lot of that infrastructure is from those times. We also sold it a couple of years ago, but still the platform that serves the market data on all these websites is still around. So for about, uh, like around two years ago, we started to get on our own uh, modernization journey to move these systems into the cloud. But that was not the biggest priority. This team, as you can see, like it was an old system. It has complexity. We were still serving print. So they had other priorities. So we started it as a small effort, as an incremental effort that will start a few things. And we'll see how long, uh, how far it takes us to get it uh, complete. But about um, more than a year ago, our business started engaging with our, some of our partners to see how they can get into an, uh, an engagement uh, and also an opportunity to reduce licensing cost by changing our providers for market data. So all the data that we get from indexes is served through a provider that we get through feeds to this platform. So, but that would mean uh, 
we have to, the engineering team that was focusing on uh, their regular work as well as moving into the cloud and leave all of that work aside and just prioritize the moving to the provider. But the other challenge was like from our previous uh, experience to do this kind of effort, we needed almost two years and almost a double the size of team that we had at that time. But this time we were given exactly a year. So May 2019, May 31st, 2019, would be the end of licensing agreement with the current private provider. So that means if we didn't change to the new provider by that date, all the data would go dark on all the websites that you saw. So timeline was a very, very critical piece here. And the team had to decide that do they continue their modernization journey along with this uh, provider switching uh, project or do they switch from on-prem to on-prem? It was a very tough decision for the team because we didn't have enough time, we didn't have enough resources, and we had to get this project done by a specific time. So the big question was like, should we continue to move into cloud or we stop that uh, effort completely? So to decide that, we uh, like, let's, let's not just decide like this or that, like we didn't want to do a coin toss there. So let's come up with a success criteria uh, for this project. Uh, so we came a few points uh, that specifically called out that like on-time delivery was very, very important for this project. There, we wanted minimal disruptions to our customers. So as you have seen, um, uh, that all the data that is being published there is used by our customers to make their own decisions around their stocks and shares, and we didn't want our customers to make wrong decisions based on the wrong data. So accuracy was very important. Like, if something goes wrong on the website, you can go ahead and change it, but if something goes wrong on the print paper, we didn't want our uh, print uh, plan to go in like with the markers, change all the data. Like, that's impossible. Like, you cannot do it with million of copies. So it has to be accurate. And uh, as we talked earlier, like the whole premise of this project was to reduce costs. We couldn't say that like, oh, give us hundreds of resources and we'll do it on time. That was also not possible, both from a cost perspective and even from a ramp uh, aspect. And uh, optimum resource utilization, we had handful of engineers, so we had to be really smart on how do we add more resources, how do we take help from uh, either from our vendors or either from the other teams uh, that uh, had some experience and some other things that they could help with. So based on these aspects of the project, uh, we decided that yes, we would move to the cloud, but there has to be a full complete strategy around this. So we, here we were on-prem, we had to move to the cloud and also to the new provider within a time frame of 365 days. So how did we do it? So I have an uh, engineering manager of the market in a team, Luke Savatsky with me, so who's gonna go further deep into uh, all the things that happened and uh, ultimately we'll see how it went at the end. Thanks, Mona. Before we get too much farther, I just wanna kinda give you a sense of what we were dealing with, uh, what our, our infrastructure uh, looked like before we started this. So we'll start here, we have five different uh, data providers. These are real time, um, up to the second when the markets are open. Um, these feed processors are, are processing thousands of messages a second. Um, if, if there's a big market event, uh, that, that can spike up to three or four times um, that amount. Um, so we have then now all these applications below that, these are now processing that data. This is real time, um, up to the second data uh, for all of our markets, all the symbols we care about. And then just focusing around our SQL Server database that we had um, is the rest of the end of day. This is end of day official pricing. Um, this is symbology. If you ask us for a symbol, we need to know what that company is, what the prices are. Um, it, it's more complicated than, um, than we would think. Um, and then finally, we have our customer facing APIs. Um, and, and these range from uh, reporting, generating XML files that are enabled to, to go to the print and able to be printed, uh, our charting application, um, any of the charts you see on, on WSJ or MarketWatch, um, to a, a service that's up, real-time updating. If you're reading a story about a company, you can see what the current price is if that company is trading. Um, and, and going to different, um, all of our different clients, um, they're all internal clients to Dow Jones, um, but we have different ways to, to give them that data as well. Um, like I said, there's XML reports, uh, there's email and, and other things there. Uh, so this entails about 200 
uh, servers. Um, they're all uh, on-premises and between two data centers, serving, and like I said, serving you know, thousands of requests per second. So this is what we had to deal with. This is what we had to move. Uh, if I look just at our SQL Server database, uh, that, was, that alone was 15 uh, servers. Uh, we have four masters. Those are mirrored across data centers um, to the distributors down to nine uh, subscribers. Um, again, split across to, it was not, not a simple architecture. So when we started our migration, the first thing we had to do is we knew we're moving to the cloud, right? We made that decision. What do we want our architecture to look like? Uh, we sat down with our architects, our engineers, um, and we wanted to plan what is our ideal architecture? What do we want um, as Dow Jones, as the market data team, what do we want our architecture to look like? Uh, we said we wanted everything to be in .NET Core. Uh, we wanted to make that change. .NET Core was where kind of Microsoft is spending their time. We wanted to be on that cutting edge. It would allow, also allow us to go into Docker containers. Uh, we wanted, we talked to our security team, right? And they said, we can't store our database passwords in our config files anymore. We probably shouldn't have been doing it anyway, but we were. They said we couldn't do it anymore in the cloud. So we needed to find some solution for secure password storage. Uh, as a team, we decided a full CI CD pipeline. Uh, before we were sending our zip files to our um, EOC team and they were doing deploys for us, we wanted to automate that process and make it a lot easier when we're moving to the cloud. Uh, we looked at Aurora, uh, we decided that we wanted to move to an Aurora database. We didn't want to manage our own instances. Beanie talked about all the great things about Aurora. We wanted to use that. We also, uh, along with Aurora, we wanted to use all other native uh, AWS services. We wanted to be using ElastiCache. We wanted to be using SQS um, and really, uh, really focus in AWS and make our architecture. Um, you know, Mona said it was 20 years old. We wanted to make it uh, modern. We wanted to use uh, Amazon to do that. So this is our ideal architecture, right? And we knew we had a year to do this migration. If we were gonna do this to all 40 some applications that we had, it, it, we wouldn't hit our deadline. Um, so we had this picture and we kind of threw it away, right? We knew we had to hit our deadline. It wasn't an option. So instead of .NET Core, we went with .NET Standard. Uh, we didn't have to do any upgrades. Uh, we didn't have to do anything like that, but that locked us into uh, Windows EC2 instances. And we were just going to have them up running 24 seven, um, just like a Windows server um, on premises. Uh, we were just gonna utilize that as well. Uh, we went with HashiCorp Vault was our, was our solution that we used for our password storage. Um, it allows us to change our passwords if we need to and, and all of that is taken care of um, in one place and we, and we don't have to do anything with that. Our CICD pipeline is, is, is a modified version of it. It, it. There's a few steps, there's a little bit of manual process that we would like to get away from. Um, but it works for us it, and we can deploy manually um, even if we have to double check things a couple times and, and do a few checks that way. Uh, we decided to go with an Aurora database. Uh, so instead of a Microsoft SQL Server, we wanted to move to Aurora um, and MySQL. And I'll talk about, a little bit about that later. But besides that, uh, we didn't really have time. We didn't feel like we had time to do anything else. Um, there's limited uh, AWS services beyond that. Um, and I think, you know, using this model uh, it really it really helped us in our in our migration, right? We're not, you know, when we planned our ideal uh, architecture, and now we can make incremental steps to get there. Um, you know, we knew we had to do this because we had the deadline. Um, but now post migration, I think this is a good model. Um, even if you don't have a tight deadline, I think using something like this helps you um, move faster, right? You can you can take less risks. You can. Uh, get everything in the cloud. Um, so we're, we're off of our uh, data centers, uh, we're in the cloud, and now we can take each of our applications and kind of pick it and uh, do some more, um, some of the development, adding in some of the AWS features that we want and redeploy it. We don't have to worry about the whole stack. Um, we're kind of already there. I think this would be a good model, um, even if you're not like, tied up against a deadline. So as we're doing the migration, right, the database is the main thing we need to migrate, um, you know, Beanie talked about it, he made it sound really easy. It may not be quite that easy, but it was close, right? Um, so it was the same two steps that he talked about, right? We run this schema conversion tool against our database, um, and you get a report. These stored procedures don't work. You know, these uh, columns are the wrong data type, they can't convert. Um, and then we had our uh, developer go through that and rewrite 
um, store procedures, rewrite you know the tables, um, and then we could we could deploy our new MySQL database. Um, and once we had the, the 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 database there, obviously we need our data there as well. So we did that in a few a few different uh, steps. Uh, the first step, you know, as Mona was talking about, kind of the previous migration that we were working on, we used this continuous migration of our entire database. So you're able to install DMS um, on a server um, on your prem in on uh, in on premises and migrate that data continually. Uh, we found there's about a five minute latency, which is perfectly fine for our for our use case, um, and that data would get to the cloud. Um, for us, and it would be updated continually. About a month after we started the project, um, we stopped that service, we brought up a new cluster, and we did a one-time migration of the entire database. So it was just a point-in-time migration, um, and that way we could use our new applications that we were starting to put in the cloud to update the database. Um, and you know, doing it like this, we were able to kind of parallelize a lot of our applications have different teams working on different parts of our architecture um, and kind of and move faster that way. Um, and about six months before our deadline, uh, we knew we had contractual obligations uh, with our old provider um, that we couldn't move all the data, or we couldn't keep the data after our deadline. Um, so we did one final step with uh, the DMS. Uh, we migrated select schemas. We selected the schemas we knew we had the rights for, um, and we forgot the rest, we migrated that, and now we have our current production database uh, with our old data um, that we had. So if we look at what our architecture looks like now, um, it's, it's mostly the same. Like I said, we did a lot of lifting and shifting. We have uh, less providers. We've consolidated um, our providers, but our, our intraday systems, are real, are, they're mostly the same. And the end of day now center around an Aurora, uh, MySQL instead of SQL Server. Uh, we did leave a few applications on premises just to um, speed up our deployment. Um, there were services that we didn't we didn't need as much, or they were on the periphery. We were able to do that. So just to to hit our deadline, we left them there. Um, the final step, getting that data to the clients, uh, we ended up installing a service uh, called Nginx on our local boxes, and so our clients were then hit our local boxes just like they always had been, and we were manually forwarding the, that traffic to the cloud. Uh, there was a little bit of a latency hit there, um, but that meant that the clients didn't have to migrate. We could migrate for them, uh, which enabled us to migrate our whole um, application and migrate all that in about eight hours on a Saturday, um, instead of over a couple months if we had to get on each of our clients' um, roadmaps and have them do the work. Um, and so that's, that's the way we did that. Now if you look at our database, this looks a lot simpler than before, right? Uh, we went with a global cluster. Uh, we decided to be in Virginia and Ohio because that put us closer to our uh, data provider. Um, and we have five readers uh, in Virginia and six in Ohio. Um, and that was the number we kind of guessed at based on our, our usage. Um, after about a month, our DBA, um, after he was watching the database, and, and, and they're a little bit more comfortable, uh, we dropped a reader in each, in each uh, region. And then after about a three months later, we dropped another region for cost savings wise, um, just to allow us to, um, you know, after we watched the performance metrics, we were comfortable with that change. So speaking of cost savings, right? This is a big, this is a big uh, a thing that you guys are here, I'm assuming. So SQL Server, if you're thinking of all the costs associated with that, you're, you're licensing your principles, your subscribers, you need SAN storage probably, you need your rack and power space. Um, Contrast that with Aurora. There's different. There's different costs there as well. Your compute, uh, your storage, is, and and the other things involved. But we found, uh, for market data, we were spending $130,000 a year um, on SQL Server. Uh, so if you guys are still with me, if you haven't changed the channel on your headset and listened to another uh, talk, um, just raise your hand if you think we saved uh, 20% uh, moving to Aurora. Anybody think we saved 20? Anybody think we say 30, 40, 50, 60? Did anybody think we saved 70% or more? A couple people. It wasn't quite that much. We saved just over 50%. Um, so this was this was all the like I said, all these costs associated um, with with that change. Post migration, working with the Amazon team, 
uh, we were able to uh, use Amazon's CloudWatch service. Uh, we use New Relic for our monitoring. We made, we've looked at our charts like this. This was um, after we had kind of settled down from the, from the migration, um, stabilized our systems. Uh, you look at a graph like this, you can see you know, 3% CPU, 40% memory. We're obviously running on too big of boxes. So then we went through um, and uh, downsized our instances or reduced the number of instances, in, in, or in many cases, both. Um, we were kind of, like I said, we were kind of guessing what we thought we would need. Um, and this was a, it was a fairly simple exercise, and, and Amazon helped us a lot with that. Um, and, and just doing redeploys, uh, we went from spending about 17000 a week um, after the migration uh, down to about $10,000. Um, and some of the blips there is when we started um, utilizing more Amazon services, we started using ElastiCache. And so we're deploying more things um, in the cloud, but also reducing our costs. Um, some of the lessons we learned, I think, through this, uh, everyone hears it, right? The more services, the better, or the more separate your services, the better. If you have interfaces, if, if, you, don't, if you have um, things talking to other services and not to the database, if you remember from our architecture slide, there's a lot of arrows pointing to that database, which meant we had to make changes in a lot of places. Uh, so we had to rewrite the data layer on a lot of applications. Uh, if, you can, if you can separate your services, uh, that's a lot better. Um, and then testing the data as soon as you can. Um, we wanted to make sure our data was, is accurate, right? Uh, we're publishing in the Wall Street Journal, and it's America's most trusted newspaper, um, and we want to keep it that way. So we want to make sure our data going to the paper um, is, is accurate and is correct. Um, so there was a lot of times where we would work with our QA team closely and say, hey, we're confident about these columns here or this set of data. We're not confident about this. And they can have that. They can test the things that we think we're right um, and, and tell us if we're wrong and, in those, and that data is not correct. Um, so trying to separate out your data, test what you can, uh, don't you know, push off what you can, um, and just testing it continually um, and, and, and doing that really helps speed up and, and find those errors uh, sooner. I'm going to turn it back over to Mona here to wrap us up. Ouch. Sorry. You guys can hear me? Yeah, OK. So thanks, Luke. That was very helpful. And um, do I see dollar signs in the audience, given how much we saved? And I'm sure you are excited to um, start your own modernization journey. So uh, here we were in the cloud with saving like so much money. Uh, so let's look at like how did we do at the end. So to my surprise, to our leadership's amazement, our team actually delivered this project 12 days ahead of the schedule. So it was May 31st, 2019. That was a deadline. We finished it 12 days. I had everything done and we were like completed. So that was incredible. And um, there was absolutely no disruption in service to our customers. We continued to serve all the market data accurately on all our websites, on all our uh, publishing and like print everything. And um, no issues related to quality as well. The data was accurate all throughout. And at the end, you saw there was a huge saving from the uh, on-prem infrastructure that we are now repurposing in the other parts of Dow Jones because we still have things that are on-prem. So uh, it was helpful even to move that uh, hardware to the other side. So given this, like uh, we did this talk yesterday also, like this is the repeat session. A few people came uh, to us after the talk that they were like, we, we are in the similar state, uh, but like, like in our case, it was a forced uh, decision for us to move, uh, and it was a very time-bound uh, thing. But for many people, like you have to do it, but there is no driver, and they are always scared of like, this is going to be a huge project, and we don't have money, or we don't have the right resources, or like how would we go about doing it? And the fear of that this thing would derail for years and years. So uh, I brought you a few of the best practices uh, also that we followed through this project. And uh, one of the beliefs that we had even in the beginning was like, we wanted to do everything right. No shortcuts, 
no uh, uh, hiding behind like, oh, we don't have to do this, we don't have to do testing, let's just patch it up, let's just fix it up. So here are a few of the best practices uh, that we followed that helped us actually be successful in this project. So we have our uh, AWS partner team here, uh, Sherry, who has been amazing, helpful. So we did the well-architected review with them that helped us to, def uh, through the process, define that we were on the right track or not. We did security review with our internal team, making sure we didn't, were not leaving any loopholes around, uh, around uh, security concerns. Planning and estimation played a huge role. A project like this, you cannot just go about doing it. You have to be very precise what you are doing, why you are doing, and what problem you are trying to solve. And we actually did estimation uh, throughout this project to keep track of like what was our velocity, how much we can deliver, and were we on track or not. And as Luke mentioned, we did go ahead and do the CI-CD implementation, not the full thing, not a one-click deployment, but still something that helped us move faster during the tail end of the project. Like last few weeks, the whole CI-CD implementation that we had in place helped us to release faster and get everything out. And if there were issues, to release, uh, fix those uh, issues in production. And scope management. Every project goes through scope creep. Like things would come from all over the places. And given that, like, before this team had many other priorities which we had to put on the back burner, there were still things coming up from various parts of the business. So we had to do, uh, make sure that, that those things were not disrupting this project. And our project manager did an amazing job doing that. So even communicating those things to our stakeholders, to the business, and to the, even the new provider that we were moving with, like, oh, we got this issue, can you help us fix it so that we don't have uh, but three, four weeks or days of time uh, spent and just uh, because of uh, communication challenges that we were not able to fix something. And uh, we talked about resource utilization earlier. So all through the project, who can come and help? Who can uh, be part of it? Uh, some of the team members that we have here jumped in and uh, wherever they could and even their colleagues come in and help. So uh, we were not shy about asking for help. And uh, as Luke mentioned, like we didn't put it on our uh, uh, other team, like the WHA team didn't have to do the work to switch to the new platform. We handled it on our end and we are now going to put it on their roadmaps for long term to fix it for uh, good. So uh, there were many things like this that helped us uh, make this project successful. So uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you have questions, uh, Luke and me and Beanie would be uh, uh, outside later on and I'll give hand it over to Beanie to uh, give some last minute pointers. Cool. Thank you. Thank you, Mara. All right, everybody. I hope you found this a, like a, just to be a very informative session today. Um, hopefully it wasn't too disappointing. <laughs> uh, but uh, I had fun. Thank you so much for spending the time with us to, to learn more about how you can modernize your workload. Uh, and if you can, just do me a huge favor. Uh, fill out the survey that's uh, you know, assigned to this session and g give me some feedback and that'll, that'll help us kind of get better with uh, you know, future sessions. Okay? Thank you.